please join me in John chapter 16. We'll be in verses 23 through 33 this morning. But before we get going, let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you so much that we can gather um, in your spirit virtually this morning. And Lord, although we are not connected, we know that there is um, great need that we have in our lives for you and for one another. And I'm praying that as we go through your word together, that you would minister to your body by your Holy Spirit, that you'd bring clarity uh, to, to you, Lord, to understanding you, to knowing you, to following you, to loving you. And so teach us this morning that we may follow you with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and bring you glory. And we just pray, Lord, that as we are seeking and following after you, that uh, this time would soon be lifted. But until then, God, we just pray that you'd strengthen your church, both uh, here and across the world. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. John chapter 16, verses 23 through 33. I'm going to read them. In that day you will ask nothing of me, Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, ah, you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Verse 31, and Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is now coming and his deed has now come when you will be scattered each one to his own home and will leave me alone and yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you, ha you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In verse 23, Jesus starts by saying that in that day you will ask nothing of me. Sounds kind of strange, but what's Jesus speaking of there? If you remember, we skipped ahead uh, a couple weeks ago to go to, uh, on Easter, to go to verses uh, 20, or I think it was 14 through 23. And basically, we ended on verse 23, or verse 22, which is the verse before this, which says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And then Jesus says in verse 23, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. And so Jesus is speaking of the day when they would see him again. In that day, when, your day, when you see me, your sorrow will turn to joy and you will ask nothing of me. <clears throat> we know that in John 16 that it's probably 
past midnight, the, the day that Jesus is going to be crucified. So they're just hours away from the cross. But on Sunday, Jesus is going to rise from the grave. So Jesus is going to die on a Friday, rise on a Sunday. And they would see him again in an upper room in Jerusalem. And their sorrow would turn to joy that Sunday night when Jesus appeared in the room. And so Jesus is speaking in part here of the resurrection. But in a fuller sense, as you look at the context of all the chapters together, uh, Jesus is, is not just speaking of the resurrection but also of what the resurrection would eventually bring them. The time where the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would come and make their home in the disciples. And that would be the beginning of the time when their sorrow would be turned to joy as they are filled with the Holy Spirit. That would be the time when they no longer would ask Jesus anything. You see, in just a few days, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And the disciples definitely did ask Jesus questions during those 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension. They were asking. So Jesus wasn't necessarily speaking of the resurrection, but rather what would come from the resurrection, this time, this season, where they no longer would be asking him personally uh, questions, but rather would be going to the Father And so Jesus is referring to this time that was coming for them, which we see in the second chapter of Acts, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit fell upon those disciples and they were filled and indwelt by God. And Jesus says of that day, that time, which is now uh, in verse 23, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. And truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask The Father, in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. You see, right up until this point, Jesus had been walking with disciples, God in bodily form. They had been asking him everything. You see, Jesus was leading them in everything. He was teaching them. He was their counselor. He was their leader. He was their guide. He was revealing to them the mysteries of the kingdom of God. When they had questions, they went to him. Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus, how do we do this or that? Or what do we do in these circumstances? You find even times that they were scared to ask him questions. But they were asking him constantly. And Jesus is saying, there's going to be a day very shortly, when you are no longer going to be asking him because he would be ascended. He wouldn't be there physically anymore. Instead, they will be asking the Father directly because Jesus made the way to the Father through his death and resurrection. And Jesus repeats that promise to them. He says to them, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus had already repeated that three times. This is the third time in the book of John. Well, actually, in that night that Jesus repeated that promise, ask whatever you want in my name to the Father, and he will give it to you. He will do it for you. John 14, 13. John 15, 16. And here in John 16, 23. And Jesus is emphatic about it. Think about that. He's emphatic. He's saying, truly, truly, In other words, you can totally, absolutely count on this promise that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will do it. 
But the context, obviously, if you read it, for them, as they would have direct access to the Father, is that they would ask in the name of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Jesus tells them to ask in his name. Now, it does not mean that we just pray whatever we want and tag in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus, and all of a sudden God is obligated to answer whatever we want because we tag this magical phrase on the end of our prayer. That is, that's not what God's talking about whatsoever. That's not what the Lord is talking about here. And there are really two points when we come to the Father and we pray in Jesus' name, there's two points here that we, we need to remember. Uh, one isn't really in this passage. It's kind of alluded to, but one is definitely. But the first point being that the disciples were to ask the Father in Jesus' name because no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So Jesus' atoning sacrifice, he, well, Mankind is separated from God because of our sin, but you see, through faith in Christ, our sin is removed. Jesus makes the way to the Father. And so as we have direct access to the Father, we come to Him on behalf or because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done in our stead, in our place. He has made the way. We come to the Lord, in, in, to God in Jesus' name based upon his atoning sacrifice and his righteousness imputed to us, given to us. So we come in Jesus' name. But secondly, we ask the Father in Jesus' name when we're asking that. It, it means to ask in, in harmony with Jesus' name, in harmony with who, all that he is. Again, it's not that magic phrase we attach on the end to get whatever we want. Some of you probably have been frustrated. You say, hey, I'm praying in the name of Jesus. What's, what's up? Why is my bank account the way it is? You know, that's not, that's not what the Lord is, is talking about here. Rather, it is that we pray in accordance with the character, the heart, the will of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus had just said to them a little early, earlier that night in John 15, 7 through 8, he said, if you abide in me, if you make your home in me, and my words abide in you. What I, what I say, what I commands are at home in your heart. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, that's the context. In Jesus' names, that means that we're to pray to the Father, Father in harmony with all, who Je- all that Jesus is, all that he commanded, all that he taught. We're supposed to be in, 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 in harmony with Jesus. And let me just tell you right now, as you already know, that Jesus was all about the glory of his Father, all about the glory of his Father, to the point of his own death. Some of you might be in a family, perhaps, where you had a family name and you were taught, hey, uh, you know, we want to live in a way that honors our family name. Don't bring disgrace to the family name. Um, and you were taught to act and to live in a way that would, would, would be in harmony with that name, uh, be it good or bad, right? Uh, but so, so Jesus tells the disciples similarly to ask the Father in his name. Pray according to Jesus' character, his will, his commands, his word. And that means we need to be people of the word, that the word of God needs to be in the people of God so that we know what he is like. 
what he requires, what his heart is. Praying according to Jesus' will. When the Spirit of God indwelt the disciples about 50 days from, from John 16, with Jesus ascending, you know, sending the Spirit, they were to begin to ask the Father in Jesus' name. And God would answer. And church, this is where prayer gets exciting. This, gets, this is where prayer gets answered, where God moves when we pray according to the will of God in Jesus' name. When we start asking Him internally to make us like Jesus, that the fruit of the Spirit would be uh, within us, that um, the characters and the qualities of Christ would be within us, and, and that He would continue to grow that, and Lord, take away everything that would, would hinder that. He begins to answer those prayers. He, he develops those things. And outwardly, as we pray for the world around us, that His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven, these types of prayer, that the lost would repent and come to Christ, we begin to pray this way according According to his heart, his will, God begins to move. And the result in that direct access, that direct prayer with the Father, praying in Jesus' name as we watch him accomplish his will and we are partnering with him in prayer is that there's an overwhelming joy that fills the heart of a believer. It's awesome. As we see our Father's will accomplished, just as Jesus had the joy that was set before him, he endured, he obeyed. And so we pray that God would, that his will would be done. And as we, as his children, just like Christ, look to him and say, Wow, Lord, do this in me, through me, around me, into your will. There's a joy that floods the believer and should flood the church as we unite together in prayer according to his will. Now, obviously, the gap is what is his will? And this is why we want to be in the word together, not just for information's sake, but that we would know him. And his Holy Spirit teaches us what his will is as we are in his, his, his word. <clears throat> and so, uh, we'll go back to that a little bit later. It'll actually develop out. But Jesus says here in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. And the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus spoke in parables to the masses. He didn't teach anywhere without using parables, which are stories. And it was only when the disciples were alone and were away from the masses that they, they would ask Jesus or Jesus would tell them what the meaning of the parable was. Without them being separate from the masses and asking or Jesus teaching them, they would have no understanding of what Jesus was talking about. And that was absolutely on purpose because the purpose of the parables uh, was not to make things understandable for the masses. I used to think that way, but then you read in Matthew 10, uh, uh, Matthew uh, 13, 10 through 13, you read that actually the purpose of the parables is to hide the mysteries of God from the masses. It's strange. But at the same time, the Lord revealed the mysteries as he explained the parables to those who believed. And so God had a mechanism for hiding the mysteries of God from the hard-hearted, unbelieving people. 
But those who did believe, those who desired to have understanding, they would be given understanding. And that was like the disciples. In Matthew 10, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, 10 through 13, the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables. Why why are you speaking these mysteries? You got to think that they got pretty tired of, of, of not understanding everything. They probably were a little bit frustrated like everybody else. But here's what Jesus says. He says, to you, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. That's a pretty hardcore statement. Verse 12, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they don't see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And he goes on quoting Isaiah. But the idea is that there is a religious people who see, but they don't see spiritually. Um, you know, they hear, but they, they don't hear spiritually. And Jesus is saying, listen, they don't have understanding. They don't have hearts. I'm not going to cast pearls before swine. But to you, the mysteries have been revealed. And so that is why he would go and separate them and give them the understanding of the parables. But Jesus is saying that these parables, the time for these parables, my teaching, and all these things that are going on to the masses, it's going to stop. It's going to end. Jesus is going to die and his public direct ministry to the masses would be over. No more parables. And when he rose for that 40 days before his ascension, he began to expound the scriptures with great clarity to his disciples. And we know this, for example, on the day of his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he walked alongside two disciples and they didn't recognize who he was. And then he began to expound to them. It says he opened their mind and gave them understanding and began to reveal that which was concerning Christ from basically the law and the prophets, just basically Genesis through Malachi, the whole Testament. He began to teach them everything that was concerning the Messiah. And so the Lord began that ministry after his resurrection where he would begin to speak clearly about the kingdom of God, about the Father, about the Son, to the disciples. And that didn't stop when he ascended. It continued when the Holy Spirit came and began to give them revelation concerning uh, him, concerning the Father, Concerning God and the, the Spirit of God descended, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, all one and the same, dwelt them at Pentecost. And we see the evidence that this teaching was ongoing because in Acts chapter 2, Peter, who was struggling, let's just say, up until that point, was filled with the Holy Spirit as God indwelt Peter. He was given astounding wisdom over the Old Testament, and you listen to what he taught, and he just went through the Old Testament and began to show them um, all about Christ. I mean, this was amazing, total evidence of the Holy Spirit. Same with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 or 6 and 7. But the Holy Spirit would make plain the mysteries of God to the disciples, and his ministry, the Holy Spirit's ministry, continues today in his church for believers today. John, as an old man, 
Um, pretty old there. He's writing uh, his epistle, 1 John. He says in chapter 2, verse 26 through 27, regarding the Holy Spirit being our teacher, uh, making plain the things of God to us. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So there were false teachers. But the anointing that you've received from him abides in you. That's the Holy Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so what's happened, the context here is that there are those false teachers who have infiltrated the church or influencing the church with, with lies, with false teaching. And what John says is here, he says, hey, the Holy Spirit is your teacher. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. That, they're inseparable. We are born again by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit indwells us permanently as believers. He's the down payment. He's the proof. And John says, listen, the Holy Spirit, that anointing, he has taught you the truth. In him is no lie. He teaches you the truth. And, and, and he abides in you not in these false teachers. And, and John is, is, is not, by the way, dismissing when he says, you have no need of a teacher. He's saying that the teacher who's doing the teaching in the church is the Holy Spirit, whether it's through gifted teachers, a pastor, or, or a Bible study leader, a women's Bible study leader, whatever it might be, or just various people within the church that are gifted. It's ultimately the Holy Spirit who is teaching. So he's not dismissing the fact that, you know, hey, no, don't need any pastors and teachers anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you don't need them. They're teaching lies. The Holy Spirit bears witness that this is the truth. He's the one doing the teaching. But the false teachers were not teaching. But it's the Holy Spirit who makes clear the Word of God. He teaches you. Think about that. When you're reading your scripture and you don't understand and, and, and you say, Lord, um, I don't understand what you mean here. I'm totally confused. And you, and you pray about it. And then in, in a short amount of time, either somehow he gives you a, a, an inkling of understanding or he puts you in contact with someone that is godly and, and, and knows the word that edifies you and gives you clarity. See, that's how, that's, that's how the Lord works. And Jesus promised his disciples and all believers that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, would be in the disciples, teaching them plainly concerning the Father. Beginning on that day, they received the Holy Spirit. And it's been that way ever since for the true church. And Jesus says in verse 26, In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And so not only on that day would the disciples be taught plainly about the Father, but Jesus was about to make the way for them where they would have direct access to God. Now, to a Jew, that would be absolutely astounding because God was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, unapproachable, only by the high priest, only once a year, once a year, and with blood offerings and all this stuff. And you know they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he dropped dead because of the holiness of God so they could drag him out and not go in there. And so this was astounding that they could have direct access to God. 
And, and not only that, Jesus tells them because the Father loves you. He himself loves you. You don't need to go to me to ask him. I'm making the way where you can go directly to the Father. Man, that is amazing. He's not dismissing himself as anything insignificant. He's saying, you have now entered into the fellowship with God. You can go directly to the Father through me. And notice, Jesus says there that the reason that the Father loved him, there's a reason in, in that, that love is qualified, but he says the reason that the Father loves them is because they have loved the Son. Because they loved Jesus. Do you love Jesus, church? If you do, the Father loves you himself. He loves you. And what I love about this is that we have direct access to the Father through the Son because we love him. And Jesus qualifies, by the way, in John 14, 15, what that love is. Jesus says, if you, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And so the disciples loved Jesus. They were the ones who kept his word, as we'll read in John 17 next week. They kept his word. They were obedient. And that's what the love language of God is. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. And that's practically played out by we loving, us loving one another. And they believed also that, God, that, that Jesus came from God. And so you have faith and obedience. And Jesus said, it is to those that love the Son of God, that the Father loves, and you have direct access to God to ask. Well, how awesome is that? And then in verse 28, Jesus gives them a preview of the clarity of revelation that would be given to them by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit would teach them. No longer shrouded in parables, Jesus tells them plainly in verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Just flat out the gospel of Jesus Christ. There it is. Jesus tells them plainly where he came from and where he is going. It's the gospel in a nutshell, verse 28, that Jesus came from the Father, he died, he rose again, and he's going back. And the disciples respond to Jesus' clear declaration there of the gospel. In verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They're like, finally, clarity. Like, can you imagine just following Jesus, not knowing what he's saying most of the time and Probably in the mass is kind of acting like you kind of know, but and then you get alongside with him, alone with him. You're like, now what did all that mean? What were you teaching? And and what it must have been, they were just re rejoiced that he just said plainly, "Listen, I came from God, I'm, I'm I'm and I'm going back to Him." He let them know plainly, and they were rejoicing. They said, "We believe, we know now. Thank you for telling us plainly." After everything they, that Jesus had been teaching them, they they finally are just like it's clicking. But even in all their excitement, their faith was actually pretty weak and would be severely tested. Jesus says in verse 31, knowing the state of their hearts, Jesus said, answered them, do you now believe? It's just hours away from Judas coming into the garden and Jesus being arrested and then tried and 
crucified. He says, do you now believe this late hour? Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. It's here. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Referring to a prophecy about the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering there. But when it came down to it, the disciples were still pretty immature. Their faith wasn't fully developed. They believed that Jesus was from the Father, was going to the Father. They believed the gospel, but they would still run. They would still flee from Jesus and leave him alone in Jesus' greatest hour. And Jesus says at the end of verse 32, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And the Father was with Jesus until that moment which only the triune God fully understands when the Father forsook the Son as he who became no sin became sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27.47. But in spite of their weak faith, in spite of their stumbling, in spite of their scattering, as they began to experience the hate of the world and they would flee and run, Jesus, knowing it all, still says to them in verse 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said these things to him so that they would have peace. Jesus is referring to the things that he had just spoken to them, the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the promise of their sorrow turning to joy, the promise that the Spirit of Christ would indwell them and would teach them with, with clarity concerning the Father, the promise that they would have direct access to the Father and could be reassured that whatever they asked in Jesus' name, he would do it and accomplish it, uh, the, the promise that the Father himself loved them. And church, these are the same promises in Christ that are ours and should bring our hearts peace right now. And Jesus desires that through these promises that you would have absolute peace in him in a world that will offer you tribulation. And these are the two things that Jesus promises here. He says, first of all, this world will give you tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. Promise. You can count on it. It's going to be tumultuous. Secondly, in this world, you will have peace in Christ. You can count on it. His peace is present in the tumultuous world for the believer. It is ours. Jesus promises that the world will bring tribulation. And this comes to believers and came to the disciples in the form of persecution. They'd be persecuted. They would scatter. They would be sought after. They would be eventually killed. But Jesus promised that they would have persecution. 
in this world. And not only persecution that comes from Jesus, but just naturally living in the world. There would be sickness, disease, famine. We've got COVID-19, the things that everybody experiences, upheaval, disaster, all these things would happen. This is what the world has for us ultimately. It is defined by tribulation. And it is going to eventually come to the great tribulation where God brings upon a season uh, a season of wrath upon the earth which it's never seen nor will, nor will ever see. Jesus says you can count on it. This world, in this world you will have tribulation. But just as you can count on this world have, bringing you tribulation, he says the opposite. But the second thing, you can count on Jesus' peace in him. If you are in Christ, you have access to the peace of God. The opposite of tribulation, peace in Christ, peace that passes understanding. It's supernatural. It's not rooted in the temporal. It's not rooted in this world. It's rooted in a place that cannot be shaken, cannot be moved, in one who has overcome the world, and that's what he's getting at there. It's not rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in a person, in Jesus Christ, his peace, his accomplishments on our behalf, his presence dwelling in us. And if, you are, if you're sitting there right now, you are either in one place or the other. You are either in Christ or you are in the world or of the world. And let me say, there's no way to live this life except for being in Christ in this world. Especially now. And you are either in Christ, trusting in him and his promises, knowing that you have direct access to God because of Jesus, that you, you have his, his, his tender ear towards you. He loves you. He cares for you. You know that you have access to God and, and all the promises that are his. Or you don't. You're either of the world or you're in Christ. So Jesus says to them, and to us by telling us, I want you to have peace in me. Jesus wants you to have peace in him. He wants me to have peace in him, his church. Jesus says, in this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. What that word take heart means, means, means have hope, have courage. That's the idea. Put your eyes on the promise, the truth. Take heart in it, hope in it. It's not like a, a maybe hope, it's a sure hope. Have courage. Jesus has overcome the tribulation of this world. He's overcome death. He has conquered sin, he's conquered death, he's conquered Satan. And through faith we are in him, more than conquerors. Paul said in Romans 8, 37 through 39, as we close, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors for, uh, through him who loved us. For I am assured that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, who had been shipwrecked, who had been stoned with rocks, who had been beaten, all these types of things, 
He said, I'm convinced nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. The peace that passes understanding in Christ Jesus. The disciples' darkest hour was on them. But the promise of God in Christ would bring them great peace and great joy in the midst of a world of tribulation. Church, if you are born again, you have his spirit. Let his promises permeate your heart and your soul. Let his peace rule your heart in this time. You have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have never come to Christ, if you're watching this, Jesus Christ came to die that you would have peace with God to take away your sins and to give you his righteousness. He died for you. He rose again. And you need him. Call out to him. Repent, which means turn from your sin. Call out and tell him what you've done and what you're doing and how you've broken his heart and his law. And then ask him to make you new that you would be born again and he will give you his mercy and his grace. He will save you from the coming judgment. He will make you a son, a daughter, and he will teach you how to walk in him. And these promises are those who love Jesus. They're for those who love Jesus. And we love him by obeying him and following him by laying our lives down. But we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So begin this week as a believer, taking hold of these promises as you have the Holy Spirit in you by boldly going to your Father in this time of need. Boldly going before him, not arrogantly, but because of all that Jesus has done on your behalf. And in his name, go to your Father and practice Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, which says, since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We're Christians. We follow Jesus. He's our hope. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, praise God, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And here's the, here's the point. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. That's how God's throne, your Father's throne, is described for you in Christ. The throne of grace. That we may find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Know that He hears you. He loves you. He will teach you as you love and obey his son. Let's pray. Father, we are overjoyed at what you have done through your son to bring us to you. And the promise of the Holy Spirit who indwells us now if we have indeed believed upon him. Lord, what promises. Thank you so much and that this will never end. Our love we've received from you, the relationship we have with you, the access we have to you, the joy 
that we have with you, Lord, will culminate on that day when we see you face to face. Until then, Lord, thank you for everything you've given us to live godly in these days. And may you receive all the glory and honor as your son is formed in us, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you um, have yet to receive the Lord and would like to connect with one of the pastors here, write to us at info at ccfww.org. We'd love to talk with you.